financial experts thought we were in the clear. They were anticipating around six rate cuts by the Fed this year. And then the inflation data came out, higher than expected. Friends, this isn't going away. It can't. The U.S. is $34 trillion in the hole, and yet we keep printing money, which pushes the prices you pay every day even higher. So you can either bury your head in the sand or you can do something about it. Diversify a portion of your savings into gold with Birch Gold Group. Gold is your hedge against inflation, and Birch Gold makes it easy to own. They'll help you convert an existing IRA or 401k into a tax-sheltered IRA in gold, and you don't pay a penny out of pocket. Text STRANGE to 989898 and get your free info kit on gold. Then talk to a precious metal specialist on how to protect your savings from persistent inflation with gold. Text STRANGE to 989898 now. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. The highly anticipated second season of the hit podcast Proof is finally here. Proof is an investigative true crime podcast co-hosted by Susan Simpson of Undisclosed and Jacinda Davis of Evil Lives Here. Proof made headlines for its first season in 2022 after proving the innocence of two Georgia men serving life sentences for murdering their friend Brian Bowling when they were just 17 years old. 25 years later, on December 8, 2022, both men were finally freed based on evidence unearthed by Proof. In the second season of Proof, Murder at the Warehouse, Susan and Jacinda are on the case again, this time traveling the streets of Manteca, California, to uncover who really murdered 18-year-old Rene Ramos. On June the 5th, 2000, Ramos's body was found buried under a pile of debris inside the shell of a new Home Depot building. Despite tips hinting at alternate suspects, tips that were ignored until now, Renee's boyfriend, 18-year-old skateboarder Jake Silva, and Ty Lopez, the 33-year-old uncle of one of Jake's close friends, were arrested and convicted of her murder. Fans of true crime and investigative series won't want to miss this riveting new season. Follow the case as Susan and Jacinda uncover long-overlooked evidence about what really happened to Renee by listening to Proof, Murder at the Warehouse, wherever you get your podcasts. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. On this episode, a comic book illustrator discusses the impact and influence of Rod Serling and the Twilight Zone. You know, I call the Twilight Zone and Serling the father of American popular culture because you could name me anything in the fantasy, science fiction, horror, or related field like Mad Men, and I could trace it back to Serling and the Twilight Zone in less than six degrees of Serling. There's never been a more important time to focus on our physical well-being, build up our natural immune system, and take control of our health. That's why the mighty Aphrodite and I take a tablespoon of ESS-60 from C60 Evo 
every morning. ESS-60 is the consumable form of carbon-60, the miracle molecule discovered by Nobel Prize winning chemists. ESS-60 from C60 Evo is the purest form of ESS-60 on the market. They produce the formula of ESS-60 that was used in a landmark animal longevity study in Paris, where rats that were fed ESS-60 lived twice their natural lifespans. Twice. ESS-60 from C60 Evo is 172 times more powerful than vitamin C. It's truly a mega antioxidant. How does it make me feel? Well, I'm 56 years old and I'm pain-free. Pain-free. My energy levels are through the roof and I sleep like a baby. The mighty Aphrodite is noticing the exact same benefits. ESS-60 delivers better health, mental clarity, and immune support. Experience the benefits for yourself. To order, go to the notes for this episode and click on the C60 Evo link. Save 5% on your order by entering the code RS1SPEC. RS1SPEC. And if you order based on a monthly refill, you'll save even more. Get your bottle of this miracle molecule ESS60 today from C60 Evo and again, Go to the episode notes for this podcast and click on the C60 Evo link. Then enter the code RS1SPEC to start saving. This product has not been evaluated by the FDA and is not intended to treat, diagnose, or cure. If you have a medical concern, please consult your healthcare provider. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. Pursuing the truth wherever it leads. Exposing evil and corruption and the secret machinations of powerful elites. Revealing the high strangeness beneath the surface of our supposed reality. Coming to you from his studio beneath the stairs. Here's Richard Serrett. Welcome to your Friday. Arlen Schumer is standing by to wax nostalgic about arguably the greatest television writer in history and his creation, The Twilight Zone. Before that, if you missed my live web conference on digital consciousness last night, there'll be another one coming along soon. You can keep checking strangeplanet.ca and click on web conferences underneath the events and appearances tab or follow me on Twitter at Richard Serrett for news on an upcoming web conference. It was great fun. We learned a lot from the always captivating and brilliant Jim Elvidge. Captivating and brilliant are certainly two words that apply to the great TV writer, producer, Rod Serling, the creative genius behind the landmark television show, The Twilight Zone. Episodes varied from fantasy, science fiction, suspense, horror, and psychological thriller, and often concluded with a macabre or unexpected twist and usually with a moral. A popular and critical success, The Twilight Zone introduced many Americans to common science fiction and fantasy tropes. The original series was shot entirely in black and white. It ran on CBS for five seasons from 1959 to 1964. And the trajectory of one young Twilight Zone viewer's life and later his career would be shaped by this remarkable program. 
Arlen Schumer is an award-winning comic book style illustrator for the advertising and editorial markets and a member of the Society of Illustrators, an author, designer of coffee table art books including Visions from the Twilight Zone and The Silver Age of Comic Book Art, which won the Independent Book Publishers Award for Best Popular Culture Book. He's recognized as an expert on American pop culture, especially the legendary TV series The Twilight Zone and the music of Bruce Springsteen, presenting his visual lectures on these and other subjects at major universities and cultural institutions across the country and around the world. Arlen, welcome to Conspiracy Unlimited. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me on, Richard. Before we get into the nuts and bolts of Rod Serling and The Twilight Zone, Tell us about this upcoming webinar, The Visions of Twilight, The Twilight Zone. Well, Visions from the Twilight Zone was the title of my coffee table art book about the Twilight Zone that I did 30 years ago. It's the only coffee table art book about the show. But this particular webinar about the Twilight Zone is called The Twilight Zone Ahead of Its Time. And what I basically do is in the wake of this pandemic and the George Floyd protests and everything that's happened since so many great twilight zone episodes mostly written by serling but some written by the other great writers like richard matheson charles beaumont george clayton johnson these are all luminaries in the science fiction field they wrote episodes that were not only of their time but have proven to be prescient in informing exactly what we're going through with this quarantining, with isolation, solitude, loneliness. I mean, these were themes from the very first debut episode of The Twilight Zone called Where Is Everybody? About a guy that finds himself totally alone and isolated in a regular American Rockwellian town. And it turns out at the end, you know, spoiler alert, of course, that he's an astronaut going through isolation training for all the lonely hours out in space when we would be eventually going to the moon. This is October 1959, remember. And at the end of the episode, the army uh, majors that are conducting the test are talking to him at the end because it was all in his mind while he hallucinated for being alone for so long. And of course, they were keeping him alive with nutrients and electrodes. But at the end, there's this great little speech by one of the army generals. And that's how I begin the webinar, by quoting him. Because the dialogue sounds like it was torn from today's headlines when he says, we can feed the stomach with concentrates. We can supply microfilm for reading, recreation, even movies of a sort. We can pump oxygen in and waste material out, but there's one thing we can't simulate. That's a very basic need, man's hunger for companionship, the barrier of loneliness. That's one thing we haven't licked yet. Mm, Indeed, indeed. That's what we're all going through and so many other episodes. I mean, in my two hour webinar, I'll be showing clips, video clips, from like 27 different episodes or something. Um, or maybe 27 clips from 17 episodes. But I edited about, you know, five or ten episodes out. And this is the third time I'm doing it, this webinar, since I started these webinars, 
um, April 1st. I did the first time Twilight Zone ahead of its time before the George Floyd protest when it was only episodes about the pandemic and the isolation and post-apocalyptic scenarios of deserted cities like New York City is right now all boarded up. I used to live there in the East Village. It's sad. Breaks my heart. But um, Give then, us a, after the yeah. George Floyd thing broke, Richard, all of a sudden, a bunch of other episodes became prescient in terms of, you know, the whole, you know, struggle post-George Floyd. So um, that's the Twilight Zone. You know, the true test of art is that it has to be both of its time and timeless. And here we are 60 years later. I mean, this fall will be the 61st anniversary of the Twilight Zone on October 2nd. Right, right. Uh, give us the particulars, first of all, about the webinar. It's happening on the 15th of July. Just give us the details, how we can yes. sign up. It's 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, and you go to NewYorkAdventureClub.com, NYAdventureClub.com, and you'll see all their list of offerings, and scroll down, and you could find Twilight Zone ahead of its time webinar with scholar, that's me, Arlen Schumer, um, also, you know, I have w links on my blog, on my website, arlentrumer.com. And I think, Richard, I messaged you uh, the direct ticket link that people can go to if, you know, you're putting this out. I will post that the in the, I will post that link yeah. in the episode notes so people can click exactly. on it and get, and get right there. So, Rod exactly. Serling, you mentioned, you know, these, uh, these universal themes. How, how was it that he was able to tap into those, as you say, 60 years ago, uh, and yet they are still so timely. What, what was it that allowed him to do that? Well, Richard, he was of the generation that came out of World War II, in a sense, with PTSD, but they didn't call it back then. It was either shell shock or it wasn't even diagnosed, but a whole generation of men came back from the war, and some of them were lucky enough to tap into their creativity and feed what they witnessed in the war, basically death, and feed it back through their art cathartically and produce great works of art. You know, we're just finding out that J.D. Salinger of Catcher in the Rye um, suffered from PTSD. And so much of that informed Catcher in the Rye and his other writings. And we're only finding that out now. But I mean, Norman Mailer came back from the war, a whole generation, and Rod Serling was one of them. And he ended up putting that worldview. I mean, he witnessed one of his army buddies. He was stationed in the Philippines. He was a paratrooper. He witnessed one of his buddies get decapitated right in front of him when a supply crate dropped by friendly forces literally dropped right on top of him from the sky right in front of Serling. My word. And that's amongst other things that he witnessed in the Philippines and wherever else he fought. And his daughters, who are in their mid-60s now, they talk about, I mean, Ann Serling wrote a book about how he would wake up in cold sweat with nightmares that the enemy was coming to get him. So imagine a guy like that ends up creating a series called The Twilight Zone. In terms of his story writing abilities, uh, yeah. you know, he grew up in the in the '30s, came of age really in the '30s, the golden age of radio, right, born golden in age of 
Right. So the golden yeah. age of radio. I'm exactly. wondering to, to what extent was were his story writing abilities inspired totally radio. by radio, and who, and totally. who in particular? Okay, totally radio, and. Um, there was a famous radio entertainer, man, now all of a sudden I'm blanking, I'm Norman, uh, maybe I'm not even getting the first name right. I wish I had my Serling notes in front of me. I'm doing this off the top of my head. But there was a famous uh, radio broadcaster who used radio to tell dramatic stories with social conscience and dealing with the issues of the day. Um, man, I can't think of his name. But anyway, the point is, is he was a big influence and Serling must have had a natural predilection for writing because when he came back from the war, he went, got the GI Bill and immediately started writing for radio in Cincinnati where he lived. And um, of course, he was right on the cusp in the early 50s writing for radio just when television was coming into form in the form of those live television productions out of New York City. So Serling moved to New York with his young family at the time, lived in Westport, Connecticut, an hour outside the city, where, by the way, cue the Twilight Zone music, that's where I live now. <laughs> and that's a whole other story. But the point is, is Serling ended up not only writing for television, but becoming its first superstar, really. They didn't use the word back then. But he won the Emmys three in a row, three years in a row, corresponding, by the way, with the three years he lived in Westport. And that gave him the creative clout to become the first writer in television to be handed his own show. You know, nowadays we're used to the David E. Kelly's, Stephen Bochco's, uh, you know, uh, David Chase, you know, creative people running the actual show. But back then in the 50s, you know, the corporations owned the shows, the advertisers dictated the content. Right. This is why Serling was in conflict with them as a, you know, they called him the angry young man type thing from the mid 50s. But he, along with Patty Chayefsky, Reginald Rose, they're the big three. They were called television playwrights. But Serling wins an Emmy in 55 for his um, 90 minute live show called Patterns, which was about a corporate struggle between the old man they want to phase out and the new man coming in. And if this sounds familiar from Twilight Zone episodes, it's because Serling would later recycle a lot of the themes that won him those Emmys into the great Twilight Zone episodes. I mean, living in Westport, commuting into the city every day to do the live shows, that's where the episode Willoughby comes from. Right. With Tyne Daly's father, James Daly, as the Serling doppelganger commuting into the city back and forth. Being creative, he was in an ad agency and uh, couldn't take the pressure. And this was a theme of patterns, and this would be a themes, like I said, throughout Serling's oeuvre, if I might use such a $10 word, but that's exactly what the Twilight Zone is. And that commuter would later be uh, the inspiration for Don Draper in Mad Men. Of course, this is the influence. You know, I call the Twilight Zone and Serling the father of American popular culture because you could name me anything in the fantasy science fiction horror or related field like Mad Men and I could trace it back to Serling and the Twilight Zone in less than six degrees of Serling to make a pun on six degrees of Kevin Bacon of course right right <laughs> but Mad Men is a perfect example I mean David Chase the, the, you know everybody 
our our modern creators of our fantasy science fiction um, popular culture, whether it's David Lynch, Steven Spielberg, J.J. Abrams, whether you grew up with the Twilight Zone on reruns or you're old enough to remember its original network run, doesn't matter. Great art can turn on, I mean, it's turning on new people every day. Why do you think there's a brand new Twilight Zone on the CBS All Access Network by creatively helmed by Jordan Peele. Jordan Peele grew up with the Twilight Zone on reruns. Right. He's not old enough. So my point is, that is the test of a work of art. It was of its time, it spoke to our time, and it's timeless. I mean, it's biblical almost in its kind of Old Testament wisdom. Right. You mentioned the Jordan Peele reboot. Um, yeah. the, the, the critical reviews have not been kind. I'm wondering, yeah. did, did he not learn from the one-hour format from that the did not go so well? Is that what happened to that? He, well, I, I don't know if you're familiar with Black Mirror, the great English yes. version of the Twilight Zone, which is actually a better homage to the Twilight Zone um, than – Unfortunately, the first two seasons of Jordan Peele's thing have been. Um, again, we could discuss this just specifically about what I, you know, find wrong or bad or problematic about his approach. And Charlie Booker or Brooker, who is the creative head of Black Mirror, to me, does a better job at paying homage to the Twilight Zone, but giving it to us in today's world. So I think uh, Jordan Peele, I mean, the whole first season, I mean, he got the job based on Get Out, which he wrote and directed, and yet none of the episodes from the first season were written by him or directed, and only one episode of the second season that I just finished binge-watching, it dropped, I think, June 25th or something, he only wrote one episode. So, you know, he was kind of handed the keys to the kingdom, uh, to pay homage to what I believe is the greatest television show of all time. And, you know, uh, maybe he's just not up to it. But uh, the thing about the half-hour format that even the Twilight Zone had to learn the lesson. You know, Alfred Hitchcock went to a one-hour. None of those shows are better than in their half-hour right, format. Right, right. Outer Limits, which I have a sentimental affection for because I was a little kid when that came on um all of those episodes i would hand them to a professional editor and have him edit them all down to a half hour like twilight zone episodes and they would be all more watchable than i feel they are now they're all padded right. a lot of talking heads the twilight zone when it jumped to one hour out of the 18 one hour episodes i believe there's only two that justify the one hour lane and that's one called Death Ship by Richard Matheson. Another one on Thursday, We Leave for Home by Surly. But the other 14 are unwatchable. Right. You mentioned Jordan Peele wrote just a handful, uh, whereas Serling wrote, I think, more than half of the 151 episodes. Serling wrote, like, I think somewhere around 90 out of the 156 episodes. Right. And ironically, I believe, I'm very critical when it comes to The Twilight Zone, like I am about all the things that I love and study. Um, out of the 156 episodes, I think half of them are dogs, Richard. Really? Now, that leaves 75 episodes. <laughs> out of those 75, I think 50 of them are what I call good to great television. And then that leaves 25 half hours. 
those are the episodes I'm giving to the aliens if they beam down in front of me and said we have room in our spaceship for one example of Earth television. What are you going to give them, Richard? Are you going to give them The Sopranos? Are you going to give them Seinfeld? Are you going to give them, you know, I'm giving them these 25 half hours and I'm going to tell them that you'll learn everything you need to know about the human race from these 25 episodes. And if you had to pick, uh, let's say, three, is it going to be the monsters to do on Maple Street? Is it going to be Eye of the Beholder? Which which one? Which three? Uh, the Invaders? Well, okay, so, you know, if somebody said, Arlen, what's your top three? You can't do it. Then it's like, what's your top five? Can't do it. There's too many good ones. What's your top ten? You still can't do it. I really kind of have a top 25. There are 25 half hours that it's just hard to leave out any one of them. But since you asked, Richard, if I had to pick the three episodes that best communicate what The Twilight Zone was in its essence, because The Twilight Zone is metaphysical. It's the dimension of imagination. It can't just be a kind of a crime story with a shock ending like the Alfred Hitchcock episodes. You know, there's an episode of The Twilight Zone fans love a lot of fans love called The Silence about a guy that agrees to not talk for a year and be put in an isolation booth. Speaking of isolation, it's one of the episodes I talk about in my webinar. And of course, spoiler alert, you get to the end of the episode in order to win the five hundred thousand dollars, which in 1961 dollars is probably five hundred million dollars today. The only way he could win was he, he cut his vocal cords. <laughs> now. A lot of Twilight Zone fans love that episode. And by the way, my 25 half hours are not another Twilight Zone fan's 25 half hours. Some of my favorite episodes other people hate, and some of the episodes they think are great, I think are in my bottom 156. So it's hard to build a consensus except for maybe a handful of episodes like Time Enough at Last, where Burgess Meredith breaks his glasses. Right, right. You know, I mean, everybody remembers that one because nobody wanted or believed we're still debating. Did Henry Bemis, the Burgess Meredith character, did he deserve that fate? And we're still debating that on these chat rooms, you know, on Facebook. Um, to this day, we're still debating that. But that's not one of my top three episodes. A lot of fans love to serve man. That ranks number one in a lot of polls about the alien that comes in to visit and we think it's beneficial and spoiler alert, they just really want us because they like, they're basically, they like to eat earth people. So that ranks high. But again, that's not even in my top 25. So you see how we differ, Richard? Right, right. But my, I would have to say, if you saw Eye of the Beholder when you were a kid and you see those pig faces at the end. Oh, yes, yes. Those burned into your brain to remain there forever. And I believe if you come to it even as an adult or as a teenager, it has the same effect. And that's because Twilight Zone rode the line between comedy and tragedy, really. You know, like the two theater masks, the smiling one and the frown? Yes. When you look at those pig faces, at first, I think your reaction is there's something almost comical about them. But at the same time, they're horrific. They're like nothing you've ever seen before. And that mixture of comedy and tragedy 
is something that's very creatively difficult to achieve. That's a tightrope that very few walk. And the greatest Twanson episodes absolutely walk that line. And I, the Beholder, is a perfect example of that because the whole conceit of the episode, again, spoiler alert, is that it's all about a woman getting plastic surgery and yet we never see the doctors and nurses' faces the whole time. The director, who I was lucky enough to actually have interviewed for my book way back when, Douglas Hayes, actually almost had to choreograph the episode so as to keep all the doctors and nurses' faces off camera or from behind or in the shadow. And talk about shadows. I mean, the episode, like all of Twilight Zone, the black and white, they're, they're like television noirs. Hmm. Again, all the remakes, starting with Spielberg's lousy 1983 movie, they all shoot in color. And they miss the whole con. The Twilight Zone is a black and white concept. It's the middle ground between light and shadow. It's people caught between reality and unreality. That's the metaphysical aspect. His and I, I was going to say, I interviewed the director of photography who won an Emmy. That's one of the Emmys Twilight Zone won for his cinematography or television photography, whatever it's called. And there was pressure early on in the Twilight Zone run to turn the show into color. It would have been one of the first color TV shows broadcast before, like, television up to 965 was in black and white. Right, it was recently right. with the Batman TV show that it introduced color. But the point is, is George Clemens vehemently objected to Serling when he said, we can't give you the Twilight Zone feeling in color like we can in black and white. Now think about the implications of that statement, Richard. George Clemens was an old Hollywood craftsman. These guys didn't think of themselves as artistes. They were craftsmen, but as incredible craftsmen, they were also artists without maybe realizing it or being able to even articulate it. It doesn't matter. The fact is they produced art within their craft. So the black and white look of the Twilight Zone, which is distinctive, there's plenty of old black and white TV shows, but when you land on the Twilight Zone, when you're flipping the dial or clicking the clicker, you know you've landed on Twilight Zone. At least that's how I felt even as a kid growing up. It doesn't look like I Love Lucy. It doesn't look like the Honeymooners. They were shot on film. You know, the Blu-rays that they have out now, uh, shameless plug department, but the Blu-rays look like they were filmed yesterday in the, some East Village experimental theater. <laughs> you know, there's that episode, uh, one of my top three after Eye of the Beholder would be five characters in search of an exit which is all about literally five different characters, a ballerina, an army major, a hobo, a bagpipe player of all things, and a clown are trapped in this white circular void. Now, it's just like, again, it's one of the episodes I show in my webinar. We're all trapped in our little circular voids right now during quarantine. And it's all about, they don't know who they are. They don't know, um, where they are. They don't know how they got there. And that's a metaphor for, again, what we're all struggling through right now. And the whole episode is like a, a piece of electronic puppet theater. <clears throat> it turns the old black and white TV set 
into like a shadow box with puppets, which of spoiler alert <laughs> is what they turn out to be at the end. They're right. they're dolls, right? Left in a Christmas doll bin out in the street. But that's not what the episode's about. Even though that's classic Twilight Zone, you know, uh, surprise ending. It's all about Earth is three billion characters in search of an exit. We're all trapped in our individual conundrums. And how do we get out? And if you remember the end of the episode, Richard, they climb on each other's backs, like, like in the circus, in order to get out. Now, what's that a metaphor for? Left to our own devices, especially men, we would be in our own caves, isolated, kind of like we are now. Hmm. But community, civilization, society, and this was Serling's message, is about working together in order to get out of the holes we're in. And that has psychiatric implications. In 25 minutes, Rod Serling was able to communicate more ideas of lasting impact and worth than any television writer, I believe, of our time. More of my conversation with Arlen Schumer when Conspiracy Unlimited returns. Hi there. I want to tell you about a podcast I know you're going to love. It's called The Dead Files from Travel Channel. On The Dead Files, Amy Allen and Steve DeShavi investigate the paranormal activity haunting real people and homes across the United States. Amy and Steve come from totally different perspectives when they investigate. Amy's a medium. She sees and speaks to dead people and uses this skill to find out why someone might be haunting a place. Steve is a retired homicide detective. He tackles the case from the other end of the spectrum and uses public records and witness accounts to piece together the history of the haunted location. On every episode, Steve and Amy investigate a different, real haunting to help the family struggling with its effects. On one episode in Falconer, New York, a family keeps waking up with scratches and bruises. They also see a shadow figure lurking around their home. They call Amy and Steve to investigate. Amy uses her strength as a medium to understand who the presence is coming from and why it's so angry. Separately, Steve finds out the history of the house from the townspeople and in public records. He finds that several people who lived in this house died, which matches Amy's findings. At the end of the episode, Steve and Amy share their findings and make a recommendation on whether it's safe to stay in the house or time to get out. There are so many crazy stories on the dead files. And what's interesting about Amy and Steve is that they investigate the hauntings from two totally different perspectives. You listen to my podcast because you love tales of the paranormal. But if you want more... Listen to The Dead Files wherever you get your podcasts. It's time to try the tea everyone's talking about. Nothing does what Life Change Tea does. They have no competition. Life Change Tea helps support a healthy body. It tastes great and leaves you feeling refreshed every day. I can't get enough of my pomegranate super tea. I brew two gallons at a time and let it steep in the fridge overnight, enough to last me the entire week. And every morning I have a 16 ounce glass of this amazing GMO non-caffeinated herbal tea. It keeps me regular by providing a gentle cleanse every day. It gets the guck out as Get The Tea co-founder Ronnie McMullen likes to say. I have tremendous energy and a clear and focused mind. I'm never gassy or bloated. And good health begins with a healthy gut. This pomegranate super tea is not available in any store. You need to go to getthetea.com. Do yourself a huge favor and give it a try. Go to getthetea.com and have a look around. 
I love the teas, but there's so much more at Get the Tea. There are products for glucose maintenance, your hair, skin, eyes, cardiovascular health, and immune support. Use the code UNLIMITED and all your orders ship for free. All of them. It's time to get your tea from getthetea.com. In another reality, Richard is a very strong and handsome man. Just not in our reality. Although I heard somebody passing him in the hall the other day, and it was, good, good, a handsome man, Richard is. I made that up. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serres. Illustrator, author, lecturer, Arlen Schumer is here. I want to ask you about his sense of justice because yep. there is that sense in totally. the episodes where the, the main character gets his or her comeuppance. Right. And there's a podcaster, I read this somewhere, I haven't heard it, but he talks about the Twilight Zone exclusively on the podcast. He had a an alternate title. It was called Nice Try, Asshole. That would have been his, his title for the Twilight nice Zone. Nice Try, Asshole? <laughs> yeah. In other words, you know, the character gets their, their comeuppance in the end. Where, oh, like that's his label for all endings like that? I, I, I guess, I, yes. Talk to me about Rod Serling's sense of justice. Well, so again, Serling is Jewish. He comes from a long line of 20th century humanist Jewish liberals, um, again, that were traumatized by World War II, saw death. You know, even Jewish comedy comes out of tragedy. I mean, modern comedy comes out of Mad Magazine. You know, Harvey Kurtzman was another of Serling's generation, started Mad Magazine, making fun of American institutions, which was the beginning. Mad Magazine is what all the Saturday Night Live writers and performers grew up on. National Lampoon comes out of Mad Magazine. But where did Kurtzman come out? It came out of the Jewish humor that came from the old country, that came to the new country, that was about the immigrant struggle to make it in America, but dealing with the tragedies of the Jewish past, which that's where the humor comes from. This is, a, this is old news, but Serling, in a sense, is a descendant out of that kind of uh, a Jewish bouillabaisse, if I might totally mix two different <laughs> cultures there. But you know what I'm saying, and and out of that, desire to make a difference with, oh, geez, the name of that radio guy just flashed and I just missed it again, the guy that influenced Serling. But Serling from early on was writing about what he believed were the social issues of the day. And in doing so was a an avatar harbinger of the issues from the 60s that would later, in a sense, come true. He was advancing. He was talking about them. You know, I, the beholder, is also a metaphor for the civil rights movement. I mean, they want to literally ghettoize the ugly people. And we're in a white hospital. You know, get it? The hospital is white. Right. And Sterling's writing this in 1960 at the dawn of the civil rights movement. That's the same year that he casts a black man in a dramatic role on television. Ivan Dixon, who would later be, quote, the black guy in Hogan's Heroes. Right, right. But nobody was casting black men in dramatic roles on television in 1960, but Serling does. Serling also cast women in serious dramatic roles on The Twilight Zone, and they were usually not married with children, so to speak. They were independent women in the early 60s, pre-women's lib. One of the great episodes, Midnight Sun, 
which is uh, pre-global warming, all about the earth getting hotter. And it's about a woman who lives alone in New York City and she's an artist. And this is 1961 America. Serling writing women in strong, dramatic roles. Some of the greatest Twilight Zone episodes have women as their stars. Elizabeth Montgomery, with and, and with all due credit to, you know, Bewitched, quest, without a question, her finest work has to be in opposite Charlie Bronson in that episode, okay, too. But I'm talking about women alone right. in the episodes. Right. Um, the great Inger Stevens was in the episode The Hitchhiker. Um there's Anne Francis as the mannequin in the episode, The After Hours, which is in my top five, maybe. Um, by the way, I, I need to mention, there has to be a third episode. I said, I, the Beholder, five characters in search of an exit. And then what would be the third episode that I would show people what the Twilight Zone was about? See, now that's a tough one. What would be that third episode? I might have to say the episode called World of Difference, in which a businessman picks up the phone in his office one day and it's dead. So he's walking out to his secretary outside his office to get her on the problem. And all of a sudden he hears, the he hears somebody yell, cut! And he turns to his left and all of a sudden there's a whole movie set there filming him. His life has become a movie. Now, in 25 minutes, this was written by Richard Matheson, the guy who wrote the second most Twilight Zone episodes after Serling. And what is that episode about? It's everything that philosophers have been um, discussing for hundreds, thousands of years. What is life? What is reality? Are we living in a benevolent universe or a malevolent one? Are we in a predestined universe in which things are decided for us or do we have free will and make it up as we go along? Later on in the 60s, with the influence of LSD and psychedelic drugs and marijuana, a whole generation was going, wow, man, life's like a movie. They were stepping outside of reality and looking at it fresh, which, by the way, is what the early 20th century surrealists wanted us to do with surrealism. The word surreal in French means on top of reality, surreal. And therefore, they wanted people to step away from their reality and look at it fresh. Had they looked in a crystal ball and seen Serling in the Twilight Zone 30 years later, they would have accepted Serling as one of their, their own. I consider him a television surrealist because at its heart, that's what the Twilight Zone was. It was surrealism on television. So when you're going through your life and something weird happens, something a little metaphysical, and somebody hums the Twilight Zone music. Doo, 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 doo. We're acknowledging a moment of existential surrealist experience. We've stepped outside of our reality for sometimes only a split second. But by doing that, we've looked at our reality fresh with new insight. That's the teaching aspect of the Twilight Zone, of any great work of art. Right. Uh and we were talking about some of the, the performances. Uh, you mentioned uh, some of the great performances. Uh, the who's who of Hollywood. Oh, and you know, uh, and and many of them, we we got our first glimpse really at you know Burt yes. Reynolds and and uh, 
uh, Robert Redford, Telly Savalas, Robert Redford, uh, Patrick McNee, uh, Bobby Duvall. The whole yeah. cast of Star Trek, the right. whole cast of Bewitched, Dick York. <laughs> yes. Agnes Moorhead, who played Adora. Yes. Was the old woman in the barn with the tiny little aliens written by Richard Matheson called The Invaders. Right. Jack Klugman, one of my favorites. Uh, four episodes. What, episode. what made their performances? I mean, obviously, these are these are great actors and actresses, but yes. was it... Um, was it the script? Was it the direction? How did they get such brilliant performances out of these people? Well, when I did my coffee table book a couple years earlier before it was published, I went to L.A. and interviewed whoever I could about The Twilight Zone. Buck Houghton, the original producer, was still alive. I mentioned Douglas Hayes, the great director of Eye of the Beholder and so many other great Twilight Zone episodes. Everybody in Hollywood that I talked to that had a connection to the show spoke so fondly of their participation in it and working for Serling. Serling, as I mentioned before, was a creative person in charge of a creative enterprise where prior to that, business people, account executives, advertising people were in charge. Ergo, so many creative people in Hollywood wanted to work with Serling he had just won three Emmys in the 50s. So the word got out in Hollywood, you want to do the Twilight Zone. You want to work with Serling because he was a creative person who allowed other people to be creative. That is the key which big business and corporations, in a sense, still don't get. But the only way you get great work is you've got to let creative people have their way. And sometimes, yes, they're going to make mistakes. There's going to be a heaven's gate once in a while. But the point is, is that's the only way you get art. And even in a commercial medium like television, Serling was an artist, and he allowed other creative people to do their thing, whether it was actors, whether it was directors, whether it was the writers, doesn't matter. To a man, each one of them told how much... I could feel the love and it shows in their work. So these performances by these actors that are immortal, timeless. I mentioned World of Difference, the actor Howard Duff, who was never an A-list movie actor, but he was a television guy. You've seen him in things, even if you don't know the name. He was married, actually, to Ida Lupino, the great female actress that also Serling gave a break and let her direct a TV episode which a lot of people love, speaking of masks, like the pig faces made by the same Twilight Zone makeup man, William Tuttle. One of the last episodes, wasn't it? Yes, 1964. But the point is, is um, Howard Duff, when you, you look at his performance in World of Difference, you can feel the desperation of a man losing his grip on reality. When you look at Vera Miles' eyes in Mirror Image, that could be my number three episode, the woman who sees herself in the bus station. Classic Serling, Twilight Zone. It's like an Edward Hopper painting come to life in black and white. <laughs> and, you know, that's an essential existential fear, seeing a double of yourself. Again, Jordan Peele's second movie called Us is basically mirror image blown up to a two-hour movie, you know, with a lot of racial implications added onto it. But the point is, is when you look at her performance, Vera Miles, who everybody knows 
Later that year, she was in Psycho as the sister. Remember? Yep. Hitchcock Psycho. But her performance in Mirror Image is one for the ages. And when she starts going off the rails in the second half of the episode, the way the great director, John Brom, who came out of film noir and directed some of the great Twilight episodes like Time Enough at Last, but he directed Mirror Image. And the way he lights her eyes as she's almost hallucinating and the rain is dripping in the background and the music by Bernard Herrmann, only the guy that did all of Hitchcock's films. Again, why would a guy not like Bernard Herrmann work in television? Because he wanted to work with Serling. And some of the greatest Twilight Zone episodes were scored by the great Bernard Herrmann. Hmm. How and the soundtrack. So my point yeah. is, that these performances, which you asked about, by so many of these great actors, they were acting their hearts out for Serling in the Twilight Zone, and it shows in their eyes, in the sweat droplets, in their in their that you can feel their performances. I can't say enough about them. They're, right. That's right. why we're still talking about them. Uh, how? As a, as a visual artist, how has Serling influenced you and your work as an illustrator? Huh. The very first television image I can recall as a child, I had to be four and a half years old, was the black and white Twilight Zone eyeball hanging in outer space. You know that image? Mm-hmm. Yes. That's my first visual image I can recall. Wow. And then, gee, what is the embossed image underneath the dust jacket of my coffee table book about the Twilight Zone that I did, in a sense, 30 years later as an adult graphic designer slash artist? I embossed the Twilight Zone eyeball on the cloth hardcover underneath the dust jacket. So if you go on Amazon, because the book is out of print, but you can still find the hardcover, it's going to cost more than the softcover, but... That embossed eyeball is worth the price of admission. But that's how I basically fed it back as an artist. You know, somebody handed me a great quote by the existentialist writer Albert Camus, who wrote The Stranger. And they said, Arlen, this quote is you. And it goes like this, a man's work is nothing but this slow trick to rediscover through the detours of art, those two or three great and simple images in whose presence his heart first opened. Mm. And I mean, the story I just told you about the Twilight Zone eyeball is exhibit A. That's one of the two or three great and simple images. The first comic cover I saw with Superman was another one. <clears throat> I was lucky enough that my mother, may she rest in peace, she was a widow. My father died when I was four months old. She took my older brother and I, by a year and a half older, to see Dr. No, the first <laughs> Sean Connery Bond movie at a drive-in. Wow. Now, I had to be, again, somewhere around five years old. I don't have a father. I can still remember the image of Connery at the end of the film wearing a ripped T-shirt, soaked in hot water because he was crawling through the giant ventilator tubes of the nuclear reactor of Dr. No's and the hot nuclear you know, water or whatever that was, was rushing through. Do you know the scene right. I'm describing? Yes, yes, yes. Imagine I'm five years old with no father, and that's the image I see. My surrogate father figure up on screen. <laughs> and again, like 
Serling, another surrogate father figure, the superhero, Superman and Batman, Connery Bond, uh, Rod Serling himself, eventually Bruce Springsteen. You know, I became art director of Bruce's first fan magazine. And, you know, if you go to my website, you'll see a Bruce Springsteen icon. I'm doing a webinar on Bruce's um, greatest live performances captured on film. That's a week after The Twilight Zone uh, on the 22nd of July. So everything that I've loved as a kid or as I got older, they all are sort of surrogate father figures. But I ended up basically becoming an artist, primarily a visual artist. But I've written and been published enough. I'm also a writer that I've just basically been feeding it back. The things that I love that I'm now sharing with them through a kind of scholarly yet also a total fan and lover of the source material. And my work should speak for itself. It's all posted, you know, online. It's all out there for people to see. My YouTube channel, everything's linked from my website, but you can see my performances. Um, the webinars you have to buy a ticket to, but even if you can't make the webinar live, the ticket allows you to watch a recording of the live webinar for like a week after. So, And again, give us the detail for Visions from the Twilight Zone webinar happening on July the 15th. Okay, so it's called The Twilight Zone Ahead of Its Time, not Visions ah, of the Ah, my time. apologies. That's the coffee Remember, table that's book. that's the title of my that's book. That's the book. It's kind of inspired. But it's called The Twilight Zone Ahead of Its Time. And if you go to nyadventureclub.com, you'll be able to scroll right to it. And um, from there, you can buy a ticket. And uh, it's Wednesday night. I mean, it's Wednesday july 15th at 8 p.m eastern standard time and double your money back if not satisfied <laughs> arlen a great pleasure we'll have to do this again thank you so much thanks for having me on richard anytime okay before i dim the lights in my little studio beneath the stairs i'll be back in a moment to share a few details about an upcoming episode If you enjoy Conspiracy Unlimited, why not become a Conspiracy Unlimited Plus member? For just $1.99 per month, you'll gain access to two bonus, exclusive commercial-free episodes per month, plus access to my back catalog of episodes. That's over 350 episodes. To subscribe, just go to conspiracyunlimitedpodcast.com and click on Gain Access to Premium Episodes. Again, Go to conspiracyunlimitedpodcast.com and click on Get Access to Premium Episodes or click on the link in the episode notes. Conspiracy Unlimited Plus for less than $2 per month. Why not sign up today? Coming up next time on Conspiracy Unlimited, the occult origins of America. And so when they saw that this was a, a new um, a new continent that hasn't been hasn't been touched, this was their, their new place to practice freely and openly. And they used it as a safe haven to come over here and practice their dark arts and, and to not be persecuted. And that's where the freedom of religion comes in. Until then, I'm Richard Serrett. So long for now. 
Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett drops every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at ConspiracyUnlimitedPodcast.com. Blow your mind. That is all for now. Oh, and remember to share and give a five-star review because we have huge egos and need love. We're like cats. We need... We need constant petting. 